Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is a third culture individual born in Malibu, West Africa. She was transplanted to her adopted homeland of North Korea. In Pyongyang, she grew up under the guardianship of Kim Il-sung. Her father, a close friend of North Korea's founder, was the first president of post-independence Equatorial Guinea. Since then, she's made her way through Beijing, Seoul, Madrid, Malibu and New York City in search of her roots before finally settling here in South London. Her book, Black Girl from Pyongyang, is a remarkable memoir about identity, versions of the truth and the journey to find meaning in places we call home. Monica Mathias, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me today. What a fascinating life story. I want to start right at the beginning. What are your earliest memories? So I do not have memory from zero to seven years old because my memory begins when I arrive in Pyongyang when I was seven years old. Before that, I do not have any memories. I have a kind of blurry memory about who, the image of my father, but that still is very blurry until now. Mm. He, that, that image was of him weeding in, in a field because he was a, a very hard worker, your, your siblings tell you. Tell us a little yes. bit about, about him and his political journey. So he, he fought against the... Uh, colonization so he is still the first president who became the first president of in Equatorial Guinea after which the was colonized by Spain, Spain yeah. yes so he is the one who signed the independence agreement with Spain and um, so since then he tried to work to build the country in a very like I, I said in the book in a nature of state where everyone is against everyone and difficult and then the aftermath of decolonization left the country with nothing so in the agreement independent agreement Spain uh, meant to agree to help the country the newborn country the new state but uh, because of the political interest, it didn't happen that way. Mm. You're very interesting in the book when you talk about colonisation and mm-hmm. how many ex-colonies have just been left with absolutely nothing. I mean, I, I know, for instance, Zambia had three university graduates mm-hmm. at independence. Mm-hmm. How can you possibly expect a country to be up and running yes. with no experience at all? And you point out that had it been the other way around, mm. had Africa perhaps colonised Europe, yeah. what might have happened then? That's that's my point. Exactly. You pointed out uh, and you understand my point very well there is what would happen if, like you said, is African country colonizing European countries? What I think because of human nature and human, the way we are and power relation is not about the color. In my view, is more about the power relation and the result would have been at least the same or worse. So we don't know. I don't know. But that's the way I see it. It's it's all about interest and power relation. Therefore, when to expect a new country, in this case, Equatorial Guinea, to be running, like you said, running up like the same level as Spain or any European country, it makes no sense to me. Mm. Because it's like uh, demanding to the baby who cannot work demanding to run. Mm, mm. 
Let's go back to seven years old. Yes. What were you doing in Pyongyang? So we arrived there. My father sent us to Pyongyang. We we had an um, earlier state visit, which I was, I mean, amazed because it was completely different culture, different scenery unfolding up on my eyes. So I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And then a year later, our father sent us to Pyongyang to study with my siblings. Why? Because of the uh, difficult relationship between Spain and uh, Spain and Equatorial Guinea, and because in the aftermath of decolonization, there was no proper education institution in a, left in Equatorial Guinea. So he needed to educate the new generation. So he sent a lot of new generation back then to study abroad, and it was only North Korea that he, he sent to most of them in China, Russia, because the communist bloc in that era was was trying to help African the new independent African country. So and out is he wasn't a communist. He was just I would say like I like to say a survivor. Mm. I mean you are your boat is turning and then someone is giving you a hand, you grab that hand. Yeah. So you were sent to Pyongyang, but you weren't just any student because you were really under the direct guardianship of the Supreme Leader. That's correct. So he he looked after us and my siblings and us, and um, he, he could have sent us back when our father died, but uh, he didn't do it. He kept his promise until... Uh, we finished our study there, our career, and he gave us a choice to whether to stay in Pyongyang or live. So regardless his political beliefs, I think I make I make a difference between a human or politician and as a human he kept he kept his promise to a late friend, which I uh, I will be grateful because without Without him, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't have any education and I wouldn't be here mm. talking to you. So there you were. You, you arrived in the country shortly after yes. uh, your father dies. Your mother goes back to Equatorial Guinea. You're completely alone, really. Yes. So I, my mom decided to go back because my eldest brother, who was starting in Cuba, was taken back to Equatorial Guinea. So I actually became orphaned mm. effectively. And that, that's, I was, a, I became very rebel because I was missing her. I did not understand anything, what was going on around me. And you were put in a military academy. Yes, which is very uh, disciplined. And I was struggling to fit in. And as a black girl in a, in a Asian society, it was quite difficult to fit in and I I struggled a lot in the beginning. And you must have had a language problem too. I was very quick in learning the language so in three months I, I, I was able to speak Korean perfectly but it was more about my aspect mm. to to get in because you know children are very uh, spontaneous when they say what they think is what they say so as a brown person they used to call me blacky or all these um so racist racist yeah. but then after 
getting to know each other, that barrier was just disappeared, mm. melted. And, yeah. What was your perception of the West whilst you were living in Pyongyang? So when I was in the boarding school, I didn't have that, any perception because I was more into getting to fit in, becoming a real Korean, like I, I felt that way because I rejected everything related to my, my route because I was very angry with my mom because she disappeared. So my mind was more into that. So I didn't have any perception about the West. But as I grew up and I became adult and, and I was in college, so I started to, and also in the university and then in the classroom, the the history that um, I studied. So uh, the perception was quite uh, scary to me. Personally, it was scary because it was seen as in the movie, it was seen as the country where all the people are very uh, cold and all the sceneries where the people, the poor people and the rich people, there were so many differences between them. Unkind, especially, and people unkind. So I was very uh, scary about the perception. And, and when I decided to leave Korea to go to Spain, I was scary very much because that was that was stuck in my mind, the West, scary. Why did you decide to go? Because um, having born in, a, in, in Africa with a European background, because my grandfather, maternal grandfather is Spanish, so I have these two cultures. And growing up in Asia, I didn't know... Who am I? So mm. as I get older and and in college, I start asking where I come from, and I needed to know, and so I decided to to do to investigate to do the research. What was your relationship with the Kim family while you were growing up? I wouldn't say Kim family all, but it was more Kim Il Sung and uh, his nephew, who was a, a deputy director in the the school where we we grew up. So he was more, the, the deputy director was more, we 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 get in contact more with him. And Kim Il-sung, he always checked how we were doing over the phone. And then, so, and he would send us to the holidays in his uh, house in uh, outside of Pyongyang, for instance, in 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 a way between Wonsan and Kumgangsan, there is a, a house, and we used to he used to send us there to spend a holiday. So the relationship was quite, I would say, quite good. Mm. Yeah. You make the distinction between the person and the politics. Yes, but I wonder if growing up there and and knowing him and mm. perhaps having some kind of insight into the family. Yes, I wonder what you think is behind the the leadership, mm. the thinking of the leadership in North Korea now? I think it's pretty much more about the culture, Confucianism, in order to understand, for me, in my view and from my experience, in order to understand the politicians or policymakers, they are human beings. So if we understand their psychology and if you understand their society, where they're living, the culture that they belongs, you might understand it. So what, in my view, everything behind is, first of all, is the culture. And um, North Korean society is very much a Confucianism 
based and collective society. So if we don't understand, we might understand why the behavior of not only the society and a bit of the politics that's going on there. Mm. But this is my view. You set off to Spain, and one of the reasons that you wanted to do that, as you say, was to examine your own heritage. Yes. Uh, And, of course, that also made you think about the circumstances of your father's death. Can you tell us about that? So he he was put in trial in 1979, accused of the atrocities in Equatorial Guinea during the decolonisation process, the aftermath, Mm -hmm. just aftermath of the decolonisation so I, I did a research. I interviewed a lot of people, more than 3,000 people I have gone. I spent half my life interviewing and looking for those people who really lived and also going to archive in, in Madrid and uh, just to, to compare with, uh, I mean, to compare the, the official narrative and the reality. And as I, the more... I dig. There was a discrepancy between the official narrative and the real, what people told me, and what I found in archives. So that made me quite um, to keep going to to really understand what happened. And um, yes, once I, I understood, I came to London to to understand it in a in a academic context. Mm. Because in the in the course of your research, yes. it turned out that perhaps your father was not this villain he'd been portrayed as. Exactly, it wasn't. Many people tell us the contrary, the mm. different story, completely different story. But again, it's about power relation between Spain and Guinea. There is and there was, and for I think it's going to be at least until for now there is a a, a asymmetric power balance. So it's not the same level of power. The power relation is is asymmetric. Mm. So when the power relation is asymmetric, it doesn't matter. The weak can say, no, this is the fact, this is what happened. But because it's the weak, the powerful version is the the one that becomes as true. Mm. Now you went back to Equatorial Guinea, now under the leadership of Obiang, the man who had, in effect, murdered your father. Yes, I went. I went back to Equatorial Guinea after when when I left Pyongyang. It was it was okay. He was polite. I must say, he was polite. And I have to ask you the same question I asked you about North Korea, because Equatorial Guinea would seem to most of us looking in as a very repressive regime at the moment. And I wonder if you have any thoughts about what drives Obiang. I think you you need to look at that from a society perspective. How was Europe society in the Middle Age? So you're saying that basically Equatorial Guinea needs centuries perhaps to catch up? Yeah. You can't, we cannot compare, this is not, I want to make sure one thing, I'm not supporting any any atrocities, any uh, oppression, that's not what I'm saying. Mm. But what I'm trying to say, if we don't, we want to understand what's going on in Africa, in many these countries, that we accuse them of, of being dictators or human rights breaches, and then, okay, let's be honest and analyse societies how they work. Mm. 
And in my view, society works like a human being. They have their childhood and they have their, you know, before you reaching the adulthood. So they're being a teenager. Teenagers, exactly. So many countries in Europe are adult. And then many countries in Africa are child. And many in Asia, they have reached the um, teenage. So how you, from adult perspective, you're looking at the, um, the child to expect them to become like you. They need to go to all this process that you, the adult, has gone. Let's have a look at the European history. I mean, this country itself, UK, if we look at back, you known country i don't think any country can become in like in one in one day mm. a democracy mm. it's, it doesn't happen now your travels were really about obviously sorting out what really happened in the past but also about finding your own sense of identity and finding where your home was did you feel at home in equatorial guinea i can't say that because it's not the place i grew up it's the place i was born yes However, because I don't have any child memory and I don't have any friends, of course I have family, very big family, but I don't know them, so I cannot say I felt at home. It's rather I wanted to get to know them and I wanted to know where I come from, but I didn't feel that way. How did you feel in Spain? It's the same because it's not the place I grew up. So it's just these these places. Of course, I like them. I can fit in. I learned how to fit in and adapt in those society. But they will not be the same as North Korea, the Pyongyang, the city where I grew up, where I laughed, I loved, I cried, I have friends, childhood friends, and I discover my favourite red bean, like I said in the book. So it's not the same. So would you say that, that you feel North Korean? I don't like saying just North Korean because I would say Korean. I include South as well. Why? Because political apart, Korean... North and South, they have the same civilization. They come from one root. So the culture is the same. I'm not talking about the political system. That's a completely different thing. So I am more Korean inside the way I, I see, I mean, the way I, I, my manner, the way I am is very, very much Korean. Mm. And living in South Korea or, or everyone, when they got to know me and we speak, they say, I feel like I'm speaking a Korean. Mm. So that shows that, yeah, politically they have a different system, but the culture is the same. Now, while you were still living in Pyongyang, as you said, you were told stories about the West and what a terrible place it was in essence. But you decided that you would go and live in New York to experience that for yourself. Yes. The reason is I... I I decided to challenge my own prejudice because I think everyone has that. So I needed to know, I, because precisely I, I grew up in a society, that country that is uh, antagonist to um, New York, so I wanted to find out by myself. And so I decided to go and I went there. And uh, the experience was very rich experience. 
I didn't stay because I wanted to keep moving on and, and discover more new societies. But the experience was really good. Mm. Now, in 2014, you decided that you'd come to London and study international relations. What That's was, correct. What was behind that? Because before coming to London, I have had I have had living in uh, all different cities and societies and experience, and I think it was time to put uh, and then I did the research about my father as well so there was two motivation for me behind that it was because I understood what happened what happened to my father through the investigation research I did and then living in New York and South uh, Seoul South Korea and in China and all other these countries I needed to put them in the um, academic context so I decided to do a master degree in international study and diplomacy. And I think it was the right decision because I understand in an empirical perspective and then also in a theory, in the context. Mm. I mean, I find that so interesting that you've lived these lives, you've been an insider in all of these places, which yes. as we study them as Westerners, yes. we see as really repressive regimes. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much your inside knowledge of that contributes to this wider debate. Who Are we wrong in our perception? I, I don't think it's wrong or right. That's not the answer I can give you. It's just, it's your perception, how you see it, I think. Mm -hmm. Because not everything what I hear about um, North Korea from here, everything is, is, I'm not saying is a lie, but maybe you've been told only one perspective. Again, that leads you to the power relation. Who is in power? Whoever is in power, it can be whoever is in power will say, will tell you what is in his interest. And that's, again, is a, there is um, a, a theory, Orientalism, written by uh, Edward Said, where he's actually talking about us and other binary, where us, we are the good one, other is the bad one. So... I think that's what's what's going on is is all power relations, and also we we describe we are the good one, but I don't think, yeah, that's the fact. But in my view, after these experiences, I I don't see the war good versus evil. It's all about the interest and very nuanced. The book, yeah. Uh, sort of ends on this note of optimism and hope, but you also talk a great deal about forgiveness. Yes, because what I realise, so I went through these stages of, of anger when I learned that my father was killed and that happened within my family. So I got very angry and I didn't know how to deal with it. It's just was, it was getting, I was interiorised it. But as I grew up and then I read a lot of books about the um, uh, Confucianism as well and uh, many philosophic books and I realized that uh, when you are angry, who, who is hurting is, is yourself, yourself, you're hurting yourself 
and there was no point to do that. I think I, I felt silly, and it was like a, like um, if you have the the call, I think you call it call, call is the um, the CO two. Um, I don't know exactly. Maybe my pronunciation. Uh, uh, oh, let's say fire. Uh, yeah. You have fire in your hands. Who is burning is you. You pretend to catch fire to throw to other people that you don't like. But in the end, who is burning is you. You're burning your hand. So what's the point of that? Hmm. So what I could do was forgiveness. And by forgiving, I don't feel that I'm weak. It's just I'm opening myself, forgiving, force you forgive yourself. And once you forgive yourself, you can forgive others. And then you need to talk. And then that's the way I think we can build a better society because with anger, whatever we, um, we're going to do, if we hate each other and we keep these traumas inside, keep in a negative way, the only thing we do is creating antagonism between us. And I don't think that's healthy. Have you found your home? I keep searching. <laughs> I keep searching, but I, I believe soon I will find home. Absolutely fascinating. Monica, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Black Girl from Pyongyang is published by Duckworth Books. It's available now and it's by Monica Mathias. <laughs> You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Nora Hull, Monica Lillis and Andre Nikolai-Pominchuin. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.